You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Gary Walkner has been active in environmental protection most of his adult life. Over the past 15 years, Gary has spearheaded the protection and restoration of his local watershed in Fort Collins, Colorado, as the co-founder, ex- executive director, and waterkeeper for Cashla Powdery River. Since 2010, Gary has played an increasing role in Colorado River protection throughout the Southwest U.S. by co-founding and directing the Save the Colorado River campaign with New Belgium Brewing and Patagonia. Gary's an award-winning environmental activist and writer. He's been named a river hero, an eco-rock star impacting the planet, and renowned environmental leader by environmental publications. Gary writes, travels, and advocates internationally for the protection of rivers, fighting climate change, and stabilizing human population. I grew up on a a river, and they've always been kind of close to my heart, I believe. Um, I I became more, much more of an activist and advocate about 20 years ago when there was a proposal to build a big, huge dam um, on the Cache River in northern Colorado, which flows through Fort Collins. And I was um, working with some friends at that time, and we decided to speak out against it. You know, I guess more on a little a personal note, I when I moved to Fort Collins many years ago, I, I purposely bought a house right near the river and uh, spent a lot of time down the river, the Cache River, with my kids when they were very young. Um, and it was sort of the place where we kind of ran wild and learned about nature and so the idea that it was going to be further drained and destroyed um, hit close to my heart and so I I kind of dove into it and it was sort of the same time where I was making a bit of a transition I was working in the academic world at the time and I was looking to uh, get more become more of an advocate and just get more kind of sink my teeth and try to make a difference so a bit of a confluence of events there kind of a lifelong interest a history of of, of working on um, being around rivers and enjoying them and then a, a personal stake in a river that's going to, uh, in a dam project that was going to further drain and destroy the river that I was closely connected to uh, in downtown Fort Collins. You're telling a similar story to a lot of people who have a far more passing interest than you do <laughs> in rivers, because out of that, it seems um, that you have developed an insatiable desire to work on river-related issues, not just in the, your neck of the woods or nationally, but globally. Can you talk a little bit about how this has all blossomed into much, much more than that first thing that got you going? Yeah, I started there on the Cache of the Pooter in Fort Collins. And, you know, when you try to build a dam on the river in the United States, at least um, now, now if the laws get changed, this could change. You know, you trigger all these federal laws, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, and you and, and if you fight a dam, you'll learn a lot about that kind of thing. Um, you also learn about water rights. You also learn about just like politics and money, because water in the West is is about politics and money and law and science. And so... Um, I was at the time kind of looking for a bit of a career change out of the academic world, and it just created a, a great little transition for me uh, there on the Poudre River. And then I started doing it more um, nationally and across the southwest U.S. I started another group around saving the Colorado River 
And so the organization is called Save the Colorado. Um, and we, uh, our sole mission is to uh, protect and restore the Colorado River. And we literally fight every proposed new dam uh, in the Colorado River Basin. And there are stunningly quite a few of those. And so um, the skill that I developed there on the booter, I've transferred to the Colorado River. And then I started working uh, pretty closely about 10 years ago, uh, and especially about the last five years with the Waterkeeper Alliance, which is based in New York City. Mm. Uh, the Waterkeeper Alliance is a global organization. And in Fort Collins, I'm actually the waterkeeper for the Cache of Poudre River. And there's about 350 or a little organizations like mine around the planet. And so we, I started visiting local organizations, doing a lot of traveling. We started a basically a free flowing rivers campaign in the Waterkeeper Alliance. So one of the things I do is travel around the planet and try to help uh, local groups protect rivers and fight dams. And just a few months ago, I was in uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe. There's a proposal for a massive new dam on the Zambezi River. And so there's a group that's blossoming there that we're trying to provide some support to, you know, legally, financially, scientific, so that they can try to protect that local river. There for the local people who uh, live around it, including most of which are, are tribal and, and community members who um, uh, who uh, thrive off the uh, the local economy, which is um, all, almost all centered around uh, rafting and recreation on the Zambezi River. It's a world famous rafting spot that would be completely destroyed if they built that dam. So it, you know, it started with um, kind of a lifelong interest, and just that I grew up along a river and just kind of just kind of ran wild along the river. And I think that rivers should run free, and people should have the opportunity to run wild along them. Those really big dam projects in other parts of the world are. Um are a little bit ominous. There's some that have gotten through, some that seems seem that, that there's nothing that could possibly stop them just because water has become, well, things that countries are threatening to go to war over. I mean, maybe they're not threatening, but they sure are positioning for that to be the next move. Egypt and uh, Ethiopia and uh, other places, it's, it's really a super David and Goliath story um, times 10 now. I mean, we've had these battles before here in the United States, but they look quaint to me as a layperson on international dam building. <laughs> uh, they look quaint to me compared to some of the things these other countries are up against with these major, major dam projects. It doesn't seem on the surface like a river being a major rafting and recreation uh, center would be enough to deter the large companies and governments that want to put these big, big things in. Thanks for cheering me up there, Jack. I, <laughs> Sorry. I'm just joking, but uh, every proposed dam has its own story. Um, but the, uh, there are also a lot of the stories are very similar. You know, um, river destruction, you know, on a massive scale uh, started in the United States. I mean, the Hoover Dam was the, was the first cut, you might say, and back in the 1930s. And that technology uh, has been transported all over the planet, uh, obviously, and you know there's just massive damn chaos all over the planet, and it's accelerating. Um, and so, you know, everywhere I've gone, they're always slightly a little bit different. Some of them around hydropower, and some of them around trying to get more water out of um, out of the river. But um, you know, a lot of them are hydropower. But um, we are definitely seeing uh, in escalated. Uh, conflict around um, dams uh, all over the planet. 
um, especially that one you just mentioned there in, in Ethiopia and Egypt, who, you know, are literally, uh, I think today and yesterday, sitting in Washington, D.C., in, in the Oval Office with President Trump trying to hammer, hammer out some kind of agreement so they don't end up going to war with each other. Um, and so that's how bad it can be. Uh, and then also, you know, just as another example, that one that I just uh, came back from Zambia and Zimbabwe around on the Zambezi River, you know, there, there's a serious drought going on. Uh, there's um, blackouts going on in the cities that are relying on the current massive uh, hydropower project downstream of the one that they're trying to build. And so, uh, you know, none of these situations are going to get better as you have an increasing um, population growth, which, of course, is the biggest driver, and then increasing, you know, need for, uh, especially in developing world countries, for them to be electrified and try to live like, uh, you know, Americans and Western Europeans live with lots and lots and lots of energy. And it's a, it, it's a, it is David and Goliath. That's the only other way, it's the only other way to call it. But uh, there are some that there's more hope on than others, I'd say. And so, you know, you try to focus your energy and do what you can. I try to do what I can every place I go uh, to make a difference. And I think I have made a difference in a lot of places. Um, we had a victory down on the Marignon River in, in Peru, uh, where uh, we had a waterkeeper develop uh, on that river. And I went down and did a, you know, a really wild wilderness raft trip for eight days with the Marignon um, uh, drains the entire eastern flank of the Andes there in Peru. And, uh, and then the government came in not too long later and said they were postponing all proposed dams on the Marignon. So sometimes you get a victory and it you know, lightens your spirits and treats some wind in your sails and you can go after others. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. Now, coming back this way, uh, it's really ironic and probably unexpected for the uh, original engineers and developers, designers of places like Glen Canyon Dam, that drought, um, climate change, um, other reasons for <laughs> that, that would threaten a dam. And, and so one of the first dams that, that, you know, like the Hoover, that you say that technology kicked off dam building all over the world, well, some of those original dams are becoming a little um, threatened in ways I don't think that people understood that might happen. The, the climate scientists have painted a bullseye on the southwestern United States for uh, increased drying and increased warming. And as things get drier and warmer, uh, there's going to be less water in the river, obviously. And that has occurred over the last 20 years. And every scientist who is looking at it is predicting it's going to increase, uh, continue to incur, and, and in fact, increase. Um, so, you know, you've got a system that uh, is, you know, the Colorado River is just one example, is drained bone dry. I mean, it's so damned that not one drop of water reaches the Sea of Cortez anymore. It's almost 5 trillion gallons of water every year that's drained out by the states and the United States. And also Mexico gets its last cut, which is about 10%. And Mexico um, drains the river right at the, right at the border. And so not one drop reaches, reaches the uh, sea. 
And so um, the the climates, the the drought over the last you know 20 years in the southwest United States has lowered the amount of water in the river on average, I think around 15 to 20 percent. And the climate science are you know predicting it's going to go down another 15 to 20 percent by the year 2050. So you have all you have this entire infrastructure, all these massive dams and reservoirs. You know, there's two huge ones, of course, which is Hoover Dam and Glen Canyon Dam, and two huge reservoirs, um, the two biggest reservoirs in the United States, I believe. And then a bunch of other dams. There's there's over 100 dams on the entire system, including some big ones up in like the Flaming Gorge up in Wyoming. Um, and there's just literally not enough water to keep the system operating the way it is. And so something's got to change. Um, in addition, there's, there's going to be uh, increasingly uh, less water. And so, you know, literally something has to change. Something's got to give. Uh, either people have to start using dramatically less amounts of water or you got to change the infrastructure because it just doesn't, um, it's not going to work in the future. And so uh, our organization believes for all sorts of reasons, but uh, climate change being one of the biggest one, that Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell uh, sh um, should be decommissioned because uh, it's just it's just wasting water and it's a wildly environmentally destructive um, Glen Canyon Dam, especially. And, you know, the entire sort of system is kind of propped up right now just to try to create uh, the cheapest possible hydropower rather than to, you know, use common sense and try to come up with, you know, more reasonable ways to use water. And so um, we filed a lawsuit against uh, Glen Canyon Dam back in December or November, I believe it was. Um, and we're trying to force the Department of Interior to rethink it and take climate change seriously, which they did not when they gave it a new management plan uh, a few years before that. And so, um, you know, it's our, we contend that the climate science is real and the climate scientists are correct. And there just simply is not going to be enough water to uh, keep the, that system alive. And Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell uh, need to be decommissioned. Now, between you and me, when do you think, when do you think it would actually be feasible, possible that we could see work begin? So we filed our lawsuit and our goal is really two points of it. Our goal is to try to force the Department of Interior to, to reanalyze the management of the dam and take climate change seriously, which they absolutely did not. And they even admit that they didn't. Um, and then also, if they take climate change seriously, they have to look at alternatives that include decommissioning the dam. So this is a legal process. Um, and, you know, and, and, it, and it, it, if we win and it goes our way, means that they're going to um, take climate change seriously and they create some sort of alternative that um, considers or evaluates uh, removing the dam and decommissioning it. And so that that would be one step along the process, which you might see happen if we're if we're victorious in the next, you know, two years or so. But then you into enter enter into a whole different world of, you know, trying to get um, the federal government to, uh, you know, act on on a court's uh, decision, which is a kind of a whole different beast. But you know, here, here's where I'm at on Glen Canyon Dam. Um, it was a mistake, and you know I think the vast majority of people um, agree with us that it was a mistake. And you know the system right now they're just trying to they're just trying to save it and prop it up, and it's literally throwing good money after bad is what's going on in the Colorado River system. But I didn't, I, you know, I didn't want to be laying on my deathbed saying, "Hey, I could have taken a swing at Glen Canyon Dam, and I didn't do it." Uh, you know, yeah. I, I'm a little younger than Dave Foreman, um, but uh, you know as I was growing up. Um, and I got into my 20s, you know, he was maybe 15 years older than me or so. 
he was one of my heroes, you know, and I used to read Edward Abbey and love it. Um, and so I, w- I wanted to take, if I had a chance to take a swing at it, I was going to take a swing at it. So we took a swing at it. Um, and, you know, that's really, we are uh, doing the right thing and things that we strongly believe in about trying to protect the river, tear down a big dumb dam and, and uh, really kind of re- restore the flow of water through the Grand Canyon too. And so um, it, w- it wasn't a hard decision for me. It was, a, it was an easy one I relished. Um, and so, you know, what is the actual um, practical outcome and when might it happen? Those are good questions, but, you know, you don't always pick every fight because you think you're going to win it quickly and, um, you know, achieve a huge victory. You, you get in a fight because you think it's the right fight to get in, and this is that kind of example. Do you ever, in your other, um, when you're consulting with other groups or directly uh, doing battle with a, an agency, a government, a local authorities, or whatever, on new dams, do you ever use these kinds of things as an example? Uh, this is the short life cycle that a dam project, however much Glen Canyon cost, how recent that project was, and how it so quickly began to fail based on their numbers, not ours. Do you use that argument? Is that a good argument to use? It's like you guys are going down a road. I mean, this is your future. This also was the beginning of your, this is how you learn how to build dams, but here's what we've learned from that, from that experiment. Yeah, here's how I will respond to that. And I'm involved in a lot of dam fights, you know, probably um, 15 here in the Southwest United States and another, you know, 15 or 20 around the world. Um, People uh, and governments in particular uh, do not make decisions based on long term um, uh, economic or environmental thinking. They almost always make decisions based on, you know, a, a a perceived short-term gain, and uh, you know, I'm not trying to be a doom and gloomer. Now on you're you, bumming but, me uh, out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm bumming you out. Um, uh, it, you know, long-term and you know, environmental or economic common sense is almost never used in decision-making processes, and that, that's really kind of always to it. Um, and that's in the United States. Now, when you get around other parts of the world, especially in developing parts of the world, and even in some, you know, fairly developed places, I was spent a fair amount of time in Eastern Europe where there's huge battles over there. And, you know, it's not, un, it's not a developing part of the world. It's, it's reasonably developed. Um, and what you run into in other parts of the world is just massive amounts of corruption too. I mean, so decisions are being made because some big hydropower company, not even a big, um, you know, gave a bunch of money to uh, the government, elected officials and, and regional governors, that kind of thing. And so, boom, guess what? The river gets destroyed, the cement gets poured. And, and sometimes, you know, what's very common around the planet is that the local people don't even benefit. And this is a, you know, a case that um, is going on right now on this uh, dam fight on the Zambezi River where the government, uh, there's, there's very likely significant corruption involved. Um, the, the government, you know, claims that they're trying to provide electricity for the people uh, and who are, you know, uh, suffering from blackouts right now. But at the same time, the contracts, if you look at them closely, they're selling the electricity, proposing to sell electricity uh, potentially to, uh, you know, the big cities in South Africa, the money flows to the government officials and the hydropower corporations. And in many cases, the local people are still sitting there in the dark. And so, um, you know, as bad as it is in the United States, 
we, for the time being, at least, still have some uh, federal environmental laws. You know, it's worse in many other places around the world. It's odd uh, to think that you'd have some sort of an appreciation for coming home and dealing with one of the uh, many fights you're in here, as opposed to someplace else where there aren't any regulations to take advantage of or any of the um, dry arguments you find yourself having to make here because they don't care about history and it's not an emotional decision or anything. It's just money. Um, But at least you have some regulations to take advantage of here. It's got to be disheartening to go around the world and see that there's so much even less than what we have here standing in the way of projects like this. Yeah, I would kind of look at it from two different ways. You know, uh, it's true that we do have, you know, federal, federal, uh, state and local laws in the United States. And, and sometimes those can be pretty effective. Um, on the other hand, one of the, one of the downsides to just being an environmentalist and environmental advocate in the United States is so much, um, activity we've seen, you know, is more professional. I would call it. It's more actual, you know, people who are paid, um, you know, sometimes reasonable amounts of money to engage in these permitting battles. A lot of scientists, a lot of attorneys, it's a lot of letter writing, it's a lot of court processes. And that has just a certain kind of, um, oh, I don't know, it it gets professionalized and part of the passion gets sucked out of it. Whereas in some other parts of the world, you know, you you see these dramatic um, battles going on where local communities, uh, you know, stand up and, and just like, blockade the road and say no you're not going to build a dam and you know there's a there's a a movie just came out about a year and a half ago and i happened to be over there and and got to visit with some of the people involved with it um in eastern europe where um they're trying to build a dam in this in this um little town and uh and a bunch of women um just decided they didn't want the dam to build because it was going to take away their water wouldn't be and they wouldn't build fire anymore and they blockaded the road, and they kept a 24/7 blockade across this road for I think it was almost a year and a half. And the and the and the wow. hydroelectric company finally stood down and said, oh, "We're not going to do it." And then, you know, and there's the women. They're called the brave women of Crucisha, and and they actually stopped it. So you see, um, you know, different kinds of environmentalism. In some ways, the environmental movement, I think, in some ways, in the developing world, it's almost healthier because it's more local and it's more passionate, and people are fighting about, you know, local passionate things they really care about. And they're, you know, they're in the streets and they're doing activities like that rather than sitting behind a computer putting in like a comment letter on an environmental impact statement or something. Yeah, and probably we've just dressed up our corruption as regulations and laws. And, you know, I wouldn't say that we should probably put ourselves on any sort of pedestal there. I think the uh, theft of water and <laughs> building of dams and everything. It just looks a lot more official here. We have legalized corruption in the United States, you know, and in a lot of third world or developing world countries, they'll just give money to the person. Uh, in, in the United States, it's legal to quote unquote lobby them and spend vast amounts of money lobbying, and it's legal to give money to their campaign for reelection. So, um, you know, we've legalized uh, uh, corruption in the United States, and that, that's there's really no other way to word it. What if you had the chance to develop an army of river advocates like you? What would be the first thing you would want people to go and do? What we really need is to move to what I would call more of a rights of nature approach to um, protecting rivers. And I always give this a quick example. You know, here in Fort Collins, Colorado, the Cache Laputa River runs through town, and um, it is uh, legal to drain the river bone dry. 
so the farmers and the cities can suck every drop of water out of the river. Uh, and um, throughout the year, they occasionally do that. And it doesn't break any law, but it's illegal if there's water in the river to walk down there and dump a five gallon um, can of gasoline in it because that pollutes the water. So the way I try to word it is that the water has a right uh, to, um, someone owns it and it has a right to, to some degree be clean, but the river itself has no right to exist at all. And so nature itself um, really doesn't have any rights. And, uh, you know, in the United States, we do have a few federal laws that, that kind of tickle the edges, you know, especially the Endangered Species Act. But, you know, by the time you're dealing with endangered species, it's already like 99% gone usually. And so you're, you're in like a life support system at that stage. But, you know, we need more like a rights of nature approach or just kind of a healthy ecosystem rights approach so that watersheds and rivers have a right to be there rather than the exact opposite, which is like the entities, and they can be people, farmers, cities, frackers, industries, whatever, have a right to drain and bone dry. And so, um, you know, you, you need, back to your question, you need some passionate people um, who, in the United States, what you need is some passionate people who would want to be in a position to spend a long amount of time um, lobbying or working with elected officials or becoming elected officials to try to change laws so that uh, nature and rivers have rights to exist uh, rather than um, the, the right being going to the entity, whether it's a government or an industry or a city that's trying to drain them dry. I've heard about uh, these things in other parts of the world, rivers getting rights, um, some species, <laughs> or at least the fight to do that. Is there anything like that uh, in the United States that you've been involved with? There's been a few of those in the United States. Um, you know, I happened to, one of the other places I've gone to is New Zealand, and there's a river down there called the Wanganui River. That's and what I was on thinking. A canoe trip with, on the Wanganui. Yeah, yeah. And it was the first river in the world to get uh, uh, what they call it, personhood rights. And I actually got to visit with some of the uh, Maori tribes people who helped do it and uh, spent a little time with them and then did a three-day trip on the Wanganui. So the Wanganui was the first one in the, in the world that got personhood rights. And then there's been a few others since then. Um, there's a few rivers who've gotten who've gotten rights of nature and personhood rights. And then you know there's there's actually whole countries like Ecuador who uh, rights of nature is actually in their constitution. Um, so the, again, the laws exist. Now I've been to Ecuador and I've been rafting in Ecuador uh, and been involved in some dam fights down there too. And you know just because you have a law or you have something in your constitution doesn't mean that. Um, it's going to get enforced. Doesn't mean the courts will recognize it, and doesn't mean that it, corruption isn't going to win no matter what. And so, you know, it, it's a it's a long battle. Um, with, you got to have a lot of passion, a lot of patience. You know, as one example, the the Maori people um, have been fighting to, you know, get some kind of rights uh, for for the Wanganui River and just their homeland there. For they, and they'll say, you know, it's been like 175 years. And they've like literally been in one version of a court process for 75 years. And mm. so, you know, it's people who started doing this uh, were long, long ago past. And so, you know, younger people have stepped up and got to keep carrying the torch, carrying the torch, carrying the torch. And so it needs to be long term. It needs to be passionate. And, you know, for lack of, uh, unfortunately, you got to say this too, it's got to be funded. And so, you know, people can't 
do things for free forever. And if you want anything actually consequential to happen, you know, you've got to find a way to pay people to do it so that the, so the thing stays alive. You know, rivers are, um, they're really kind of the heart and soul of a community. And, you know, m- many cities in the United States, and this is true all over the world, were, are built around the river because that's, you know, how um, trade used to pass up and down rivers. And it was mm. sort of the gathering point for lots of, you know, political and social events. And so it's not a hard story to tell. And you find a lot of people passionately interested in protecting their local river. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the powers that be are on the wrong side of the wrong side of the equation and, and they're called powers that be for a good reason because they have a lot of power a lot of legal power a lot of money and so um it's it's often a david and goliath effort you know i have been involved you know with a few victories here and there um including that one i mentioned down in the manion river in, in peru uh that's kind of you know we run into a temporary victory you know i think it was um you mentioned david brower i think it was david brower who said that you know in environmental work every victory is temporary but every loss is permanent even if it wasn't this fever pitch say we calm things down somewhere as a, a somewhere in the probably 50 to 100 year range but what if we did calm things down and get people to sort of have an ethos about taking care of our planet taking care of nature in their own area we would still be teaching people how to do that all the time. And we would still run into problems where some people have an idea that's not so good compared to others in terms of conservation or river issues. I mean, what you're saying is we would never stop having to be working on conservation and being environmentalists and bringing new ones up who are going to pass the torch to and have them taking care of the land. It's just at a fever pitch now. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, not to make a segue to, of course, another, um, you know, uh, a whole nother podcast you could do, probably 10 on this topic, you know, <laughs> population growth is really driving everything. And, you know, in the United States, we're averaging around two to two and a half million per people per year. And if you, you know, just think about that geographically, every three to four years, we're averaging a new Los and we're, we're adding a new Los Angeles County to the United States. So take that blob of Los Angeles and just start plopping every three or four years, just plop a new one somewhere down in the United States. The uh, amount of damage that that causes to the environment, of course, is incredible. But just also the amount, you know, uh, Americans are also, as you know, well, uh, prodigious consumers. I mean, we're voracious consumers of natural resources and consumer products. And and we're not only uh, kind of consuming and devouring the United States, we're uh, because of the kind of multinational corporate capitalist, um, you know, way that resources are consumed around the planet, you know, we cause massive destruction all over the planet too, just by all of our um, consumption habits. And so, my, sort of my point though is, I'm not trying just to be a buzzkill, I promise. But um, um, you know, population growth drives a lot of it, and unfortunately, what you see is, and, and I've had the opportunity to travel a fair amount in the developing world the last five years. Uh, you know, some portion of people in the developing world want to live like us in the United States. And I don't mean just with getting electricity. I mean, with all the consumer products and cars and houses and the whole routine. And so, um, you know, you know, there's that there's that one organization called Earth Overshoot Day that predicts the day that the Earth's resources have been consumed for the year. And the day keeps going, you know, back and back and back. I think it's in uh, June or July now. And and the United States is back into March. So by the time we get to March, we've consumed all the resources that are available to us in the United States. The prognosis is not particularly positive. 
Jack, uh, in terms of uh, just the, the sheer number of people, just a massive humanity and our voracious appetites for consuming resources, uh, whether it be water to grow crops or water. And unfortunately, you know, here in the United States, especially in the Western U.S. and here in Fort, Fort Collins, I mean, it's it's we're, we're destroying rivers to keep the grass green. So you got people moving into a semi-arid environment who think they should have, you know, green grass every year. And so they just literally, you know, they built, you know, Fort Collins is one example. There's this project to build a, a large new dam. It would cost $125 million. Um, and, and there's another one on the same river where it's going to cost $1.2 billion. Almost all of this is just to keep the grass green. So this isn't, um, this isn't like people are going to go without electricity or not be able to watch TV or have a car. It's just to like keep the grass green in the yard for, you know, July, August, and September when it finally quits raining. And so, you know, uh, our, our voraciousness of, of appetites, just the kind of affluenza that we're used to, uh, is driving a lot of this uh, destruction. You sound pretty upbeat for a guy who knows all of these things about what's going on. How do you do that? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, I, I'm, it's kind of funny. I'm, um, I don't think the prognosis is good, but uh, I'm dedicated to trying to make a difference, and I'm a, I'm a, and I'm a strangely sort of upbeat person. Um, you can't do it, you can't let it get you down terribly and do it uh, over and over and over every day. You got to find a, a balance. You got to find a, you know, a, a happy personal life. You got to get exercise. You got to get out and see some sunshine. You got to enjoy places too. And so, um, I try to do that as much as possible. Um, you know, I'm I'm also not, you know, just like a perfect saint. I'm not going to fall on my sword and, and you know, kill myself or stop in one little dam. But, you know, I, I'm doing what I can. I'm able to make a decent living at it. And so it seems like a uh, a reasonable, sensible way to go through life, at least from, from my perspective. I can't think of anything that would make someone fall in love with the kinds of things that you work with at your organization that you write about than going down a river. Uh, let's lighten it up a little bit. What's your favorite river trip? What's your favorite section of river? One of the best rivers in the West is the Yampa River that um, flows in Northwest Colorado. Um, it's got a couple sort of smaller dams up in its headwaters, but it's all, it's one of the almost um, uh, uh, free flowing rivers in the state. Um, it goes through dinosaur national park or dinosaur national monument, um, which is uh you know, beautiful and wild and pristine. It's got a couple of uh, big rapids on it. And, you know, you feel like you're on a, on a river that's still flowing and alive and you kind of get away from uh, all the cares and worries of life. Um, you know, and that's, that's really one of the places where the uh, David Brower and the, and the, you know, dam fighting movement um, really got its legs here in the United States back in the 1960s. Um, was to try to save Dinosaur National 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 Park, and um, so it's still there. Um, and you can you can float it in, in May and June, sometimes even up in July if it's still got enough water in it. And it'll it'll make you feel like the 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 real thing and real it's real alive. And you know, also one of the other things that helps is because it goes through the park. Uh, it's closely regulated. The number of people that are allowed in it uh, is regulated, so you don't run into too many crowds, um, and also it's a sparsely populated place of Colorado too, and so there's just not a lot of people around. You can feel like you're uh, maybe um, transported back into history a little bit too. So uh, I, I try to do that kind of thing, um, you know, once or twice a year, and I also 
try to travel quite a bit um, and, you know, see some of these amazing rivers. You know, I've had uh, a lot of um, good fortune, not just the Zambezi River, but rivers in Nepal and South America. Um, and so, you know, you got to kind of uh, recharge your batteries and feel like there's some uh, great places worth saving. And, and you know, really what makes it um, worthwhile Everywhere I go, I run into amazing people, and there are just people who are so passionate about trying to keep rivers alive and keep them wild uh, that that always makes it worth it, you know. And, and I, I'm a writer, of course, and I end up writing stories about most places I go. And you know, half the story is usually about the place you're trying to save, but the other half is about the people who are trying to save those places and save those rivers because that's where you get a lot of your batteries recharged and get a lot of your juice because. Um, the, the human spirit is, is still working hard to try to keep nature alive. People are the problem, but they are also the solution. And you can't lump humanity all together and just say, I hate the whole thing because of those people that you're talking about. Thanks so much for your time on being here with us on Rewilding Earth Podcast. Yeah, thank you, Jack. Uh, I'm a big fan of rewilding and I, and I appreciate you reaching out. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.